Hi friends, this is Will Dyer, the pastor here at the First Baptist Church of Augusta. Welcome to our podcast. I hope the message that you are about to hear will give you some joy in your day. But more than that, I hope that this message will connect you to Jesus. The mission of our church is to connect people to Jesus Christ in a community of faith. And it is my greatest hope that the message you are about to hear will better connect you with Jesus and His way in the world. Good morning, friends. I want to invite you to turn with me in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5. And in just a moment, we are going to read verses 38 through 48. We are now uh, deep into our series on the masterclass of Jesus, the Sermon on the Mount. And it was good to be away last week uh, to get some refreshment and some relaxation with my family. And David did a wonderful job continuing in our series. And I want to remind you that each week builds on what came before it. And so if you missed anything, I invite you to go to our website, discoverfbc.org, or you can download our podcast while you're out jogging in this crisp, cool morning weather or doing whatever it is that you do. You can catch up on what you might have missed. But to those of you watching online and on television, I'm thrilled you are with us this morning. And we begin, as is always fitting, by reading together from this story of God and God's people. So I invite you to turn in your Bibles or follow along on the screen as we read Matthew chapter 5, verses 38 through 48. Jesus says, you've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say to you, don't use violence to resist evil. Instead, when someone hits you on the right cheek, turn the other one toward him. When someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, let him have your cloak too. And when someone forces you to go one mile, go a second one with him. Give to anyone who asks you and don't refuse someone who wants to borrow from you. You've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemies. Pray for people who persecute you. That way, you'll be children of your Father in heaven. After all, he makes the sun rise on bad and good alike. And he sends rain on both the upright and on the unjust. Look at it like this. If you love those who love you, do you expect a special reward? Even tax collectors do that, don't they? And if you only greet your own family, what's so special about that? Even Gentiles do that, don't they? Well then, you must be perfect just as your heavenly father is perfect. So friends, this section of the Sermon on the Mount in particular, where Jesus talks about going the second mile and turning the other cheek, it is one of those that I think might be in the top five most misunderstood sections in not just the Sermon on the Mount, but the most misunderstood sections in the whole of the Bible. 
It's one of those moments in the teachings of Jesus where normal human beings might read it and without having any context, without understanding who Jesus was talking to initially, we just throw up our hands or we simply pretend like Jesus maybe didn't say that. We just want to act like maybe Jesus uh, um, threw that in there by mistake. We're just going to ignore that section. And it's not just us that misunderstand. It's not just us who ignore, but people have done this throughout the ages, right? For misunderstanding, I, I think about, I cannot help but go to Bertrand Russell, right? Bertrand Russell, one of the great philosophical giants of the 20th century, this English philosopher who grew up as a Christian, but eventually turned to atheism. And as he was talking about Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, a prime example of misunderstanding this section, he was quoted as saying this, that the principle love your enemy is good. There's nothing to be said against it, except that it is too difficult for most of us to practice seriously. You see, Bertrand Russell read this section of the Sermon on the Mount and he misunderstood. And I would argue that most of us probably misunderstand as well. I've talked about this each week, how we have to be careful not to read the Sermon on the Mount and this section in particular as a list of things that we have to do in order to be in right relationship with God. We have to be careful not to misunderstand what Jesus is teaching and hear it as a law of things we have to accomplish in order to follow Jesus well. That is a total misunderstanding. The Sermon on the Mount and this section is not a list of things you have to do, but it's an invitation to have your heart transformed. It's an invitation to live in an entirely different way, in a way that is more genuinely human. But most of us, like Bertrand Russell, if one of the greatest philosophers of the 20th century can misunderstand, then we can obviously misunderstand as well. And it's one thing to misunderstand this section where Jesus says, turn the other cheek and go the second mile and give your cloak as well. But I would argue a lot of us don't misunderstand it. We simply ignore it. Another great philosopher of our day is Charlie Daniels, <laughs> you know, Charlie Daniels, the devil, went down to Georgia. Well, I grew up in the mountains of North Georgia, and Charlie Daniels was a staple part of my diet in music as a teenager and as a kid. And there's one song in particular, you got to remember, Charlie Daniels is an evangelical Christian. Charlie Daniels says that he follows Jesus, and he accepts this way in the world. And Charlie Daniels is a prime example of someone who simply ignores this section on the Sermon on the Mount. He's got a song called Simple Man. And in it, I'm not going to sing it to you. I will spare you that torture. But he says, I, I'm, I ain't nothing, ain't nothing but a simple man. You call me a redneck, I reckon that I am. But this thing's going on, it's shaking me down to the core. And he goes on and talks about what's wrong with the world. And then in the chorus, again and again throughout the song, he says this. The good book says it, so I know it's the truth. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. You better watch where you're going and remember where I've been, because that's the way I see it. I'm a simple man. The good book says it, 
So I know it's the truth, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. And some of us simply want to ignore what Jesus says. And I will give Charlie Daniels credit, right? It makes more sense in a melody to say the good book says it, so I know it's the truth, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, than saying the good book says it, so I know it's the truth. You've heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and the tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, don't use violence to resist evil and then go on from there. It might not fit in Charlie Daniels' song, but that's what we do with this section in the Sermon on the Mount. And what I want us to spend our time on this morning is correcting the false assumption of Bertrand Russell that this is a list of things we have to do while also not following the way of Daniel's and simply ignoring the text. Because when we can root it in context, when we can put Jesus' words in the mouth of this great first century rabbi speaking to first century Jews, then friends, this section has tremendous transformative power and it exposes for us the myth of redemptive violence. And so let's jump in for the next few minutes talking about this text in particular. Jesus begins, And he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Okay, we need to stop and ask the question, where have we heard that? Where does this section of the Bible come from? And when we look in the Old Testament, what we will find is two places in particular. In the book of Exodus in chapter 20, but also in the book of Leviticus chapter 24. And in Leviticus chapter 24, this is Moses giving the law to the people of Israel. Now remember, Moses in Exodus and in Leviticus has received the law from God. He has gone up on Mount Sinai and he's come down with this beautiful teaching, the Torah that he is giving to the people of Israel. Now, he's giving it to the people of Israel because just a few years earlier, just a few weeks earlier, actually, they had been slaves in Egypt. They'd been slaves in Egypt. And if you go back and read the story of Exodus, we hear about God who frees the Israelites from Egyptian control. They cross over the Red Sea. Miriam dances and sings. And the Israelites who had been slaves for generations were set free to worship God and be a new people in the world, to be the salt of the earth to be the light of the world, as we talked about a few weeks ago. And as they begin their journey into their new existence, the people of Israel have a fundamental question to answer. How are we going to live? How are we going to structure our society so that we might be a different sort of people in the world, so that we might live in a counter-cultural way? And the book of Exodus, really from chapter 20 onward, and also the book of Leviticus in particular, lays out for us, this is how you're going to live. This is how you are going to structure not only society, but in this section, your relationships with each other. And in Leviticus and in Exodus, we come to this section where Jesus right? You have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. That comes from God. 
That comes from God as he is laying out the ground rules and this beautiful teaching for how Israel is going to be an alternative voice, an alternative people in a world of vengeance and anger and violence. And I want to read to you in Leviticus chapter 24. Here's what we read in verse 20. That anyone who injures their neighbor is bound to be injured in the same manner. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. The same thing is said, as I mentioned earlier, in the book of Exodus. Now, friends, I got to stop for a minute because that's where it comes from. And I have to tell you that on a pretty routine basis, I will run into friends uh, and, and people out in the community who they're not Christian or they're, they're not religious at all. And part of what they will hear, part of the rationale for rejecting faith is I will hear pretty routinely how primitive the Bible is, how backwards religion is. And one of the verses that is cited pretty regularly is this. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth? I've even heard someone quote to me before, Will, don't you know that an eye for an eye makes the whole world blind? And and I get where they are coming from, but here's the trick. That this teaching in Exodus, this teaching that Jesus references from the book of Leviticus, it is in fact a revolutionary step forward in human understanding. It is a revolutionary step forward in human consciousness in how people are called to deal with each other. An eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. Essentially, what it means in its context is that we are now living in an environment. Israel, freed from slavery and now living as an independent, autonomous people of God. As they had seen in Egypt, as they were slaves, their lives were not valued. They were cast aside and their injuries meant nothing. And there was a system where the Pharaoh was at the top and they as slaves were at the bottom. And Pharaoh could do whatever he wanted and there were no consequences. And they, if they did anything wrong, their lives would have been taken. And as they journey from this hierarchical caste system world into the wilderness and they receive the law, this teaching, friends, An eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth, injury for injury. While it might seem primitive for us, what we have to understand is that in fact, this is a revolutionary monumental movement forward because it levels the playing field. It teaches us that in fact, there is no difference between Pharaoh and the slave. There is no difference between the king and the homeless man. There is no difference in the way God teaches us to deal with each other between the rich and the poor and male and female. And we are all on equal standing before God. And while it might seem primitive to us as 21st century Americans, it is a monumental leap forward that this teaching, my friends, represents an incredible leap forward in human justice. For the first time in human history, we see that all people are created equal before God. 
Go back just 300 years prior, and there's this, this uh, huge monument, a, a steel obelisk that we had found. It's known as the Code of Hammurabi, 300 years before the Exodus journey, right around 1750 B.C., and we have found this code of Hammurabi. It's one of the first written legal codes that we have in human history. And the code of Hammurabi does some incredible things, laying out, uh, hey, look, this is who God is. This is who we are. Now, their God was Samash, who was the Babylonian sun god. And Hammurabi was the king of the Babylonians. And if you read on this code of Hammurabi that is now actually located in the Louvre in Paris, what you will find is that there is a principle known as lex talionis, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. But in the culture of Babylon, that only applied to equals. If you are of the same social standing as me and you knock out my teeth, for example, then I need to knock out your teeth. But this, my friends, is where the difference comes into play. Israel is different than Babylon. Because in Israel, we are all on equal standing. But in Babylon, if you, for example, are someone underneath me and I poke out your eye or knock it out on purpose, then I just give you some money and we're all good. Although if you as a lower class man injure my eye as one of the wealthy elite, well then, friend, you are executed. In the Code of Hammurabi, for example, we read that men are allowed to have adultery and sleep with as many women as they possibly want. But women, if they are caught practicing immorality, they, along with the person <laughs> that they are sleeping with, are tossed into the Euphrates River and their hands are bound so that they die. There was a world of unequal justice. There was a world that said some people are more valuable than others. And so while it might seem primitive to us, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, it is in fact this incredible leap forward in the understanding of humanity. We are all on the same page. And if you do something wrong to me, then I will do that back to you. We are all on the same page. And what is fascinating to me is that Jesus, uh, just a few centuries later, comes up and he stands in the Sermon on the Mount and he says, look, this thing that you've been taught for generations now, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, I am telling you there is a better way forward. I am telling you that is not the direction that we are going to go any longer. Because Jesus exposes something inherent in eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth. While it was a revolutionary leap forward, here's the thing that Jesus understood. That it doesn't, in fact, change the state of the human heart. That if I put out, if you put out my eye and I put out yours, the cycle of anger continues. If you knock out my teeth and I in turn get to take yours out as well, friends, the anger that is inherent in the human heart continues on and on and on. And there's this idea that was present then and it is present now that redemptive violence can cure our ills. But the reality is Jesus knows we have to go deeper. 
We have to go deeper into the depths of the human heart and seek true transformation there. So he says, you have heard that it was said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. But I say unto you, don't use violence to resist someone who is doing evil. So who is he talking about? Real quick, there's a group of Jews living in the time of Jesus. They're known as the Sakari. If you translate that word literally, it means little knives. And there was this group, the Sakari, and they were committed to perpetrating violence against Rome. That was the big empire who was, uh, had taken over Israel. And they were committed. Anytime they saw not only a Roman citizen, but someone who was friends with the Romans, they carried around these little knives on their pockets. And every chance that they had, they would, they would use those knives to inflict violence on their enemies. And so Jesus, contextually speaking to real people in real situations, said, look, you've heard that it was said and you're watching what these people are doing, but I am telling you, friends, that that way of violence will ultimately lead to our destruction. It will lead to your destruction, not only in a physical sense, but more importantly, the death of your soul. And so Jesus says, there is a better way forward. And he lays out for us a few examples that I just want to walk through real quick that expose the myth of redemptive violence. And instead, they model for us a better way forward. So he says, if someone hits you on the right cheek, then turn the other cheek to them as well. Now, in the culture of Jesus, the left hand was used for nothing. It was ritually unclean. So the, right, the left hand was basically off limits. And if you were going to slap someone on the right cheek, you would have had to use the back of your hand. And if you slap someone with the back of your hand in the culture, an honor and shame culture that Jesus was living in, that was not only inflicting violence upon them, but more importantly, it was an insult. Because the only time you would slap someone with a backhand would be if they were a child, if they were an inferior or if they were a woman. And so Jesus says in this first section, I tell you, if someone slaps you on the right cheek, which means they've hit you with the backhand, then turn the other cheek to them as well. And what he is saying is force them to look you in the eyes. And if they are going to hit you again, they will do so knowing that they strike someone who stands on equal footing. They will hit someone who, while they are looking at you in the eyes and recognizing someone who is created in the divine image. If someone slaps you as an inferior, then turn the other cheek and force them to consider the impact of what they are doing to you. See, look deep within the depths of your heart, Jesus is saying. If someone takes you to court, and they take your coat, or they take your shirt, then go ahead and give them your cloak as well, Jesus says. And that really doesn't make a whole lot of sense to us, right? Uh, but if you put it in context, not in 21st century, but in 1st century, here's what you've got to know. That if you had a coat and it was taken, and if you had a cloak, it was taken, you only had a few pieces of garment in your wardrobe, and that would have left you what? Naked. Now, uh, being naked in our culture, it is a terrible thing. The person who is naked is ashamed. They feel guilty. Ugh. 
or at least decent people feel that way. But in the culture and time of Jesus, if you had been in a courtroom and someone had taken your shirt and Jesus says, go ahead and give them your cloak as well. What would have happened in that moment is the person who had taken that stuff from you, the person who had brought you before the courtroom, as you stripped down to your nakedness, the shame would have been given to the person responsible for taking your stuff. The shame would not be on the one who was standing there naked, but the shame, the guilt, the offense would have been on the perpetrator. Look what you have done to me. Are you sure this is the way that you want to move forward? Jesus says, if someone takes your shirt, then give them your cloak as well. And you stand before them and make them wrestle with the fact that they are robbing you of your humanity. They are in the wrong. And not through returning violence for violence will you show them that, but instead by engaging in a different sort of resistance, a way that is generous, a way that doesn't imagine that hate plus hate will equal peace. That is how we will move forward. So Jesus says, if someone hits you on the right cheek, then turn the other to them. If someone takes your shirt, then give them your cloak. Jesus goes on and he says, if someone makes you walk one mile, then I want you to walk the second now, some of you might have heard this, but in the context of the Roman Empire in Jerusalem and in the Galilee of the first century, there was a military occupation. There were Roman soldiers virtually everywhere. And Roman soldiers, according to Roman law, were allowed to just pick random people off the street. Hey, you, Jew, come carry my bag. And you could make them carry all of your gear, which would have been incredibly heavy, for up to one mile for up to one mile. And then at that point, you could go no further. And so it was commonplace to carry the stuff for one mile, to drop it down. And you can imagine the Jew who cusses and curses this Roman citizen. You're a stranger in our land. You're making me do stuff I don't want to do. The Sakari who would have used it as an opportunity to try and kill a Roman soldier. <laughs> and Jesus comes along and he says, actually, Here's what we're going to do. When someone asks you to walk the first mile, you're going to pick it up and you're going to do it and you're going to carry it. And precisely in the moment where they expect you to drop it all and walk away in anger, I want you to take the next step. And I want you to show that there is a different way of being human. Yeah, the idea, the myth of redemptive violence, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, while a revolutionary movement in human consciousness, what Jesus understood is that ultimately we need to go further to the transformation of the heart. And in this section of the Sermon on the Mount, he gives us three different ideas, not laws to follow, but three different ideas and characteristics of people whose lives have been transformed by the gospel and they are able to show a better way forward. 
when I read this section of the Sermon on the Mount, I cannot help but think about that wonderful writer, Jonathan Sachs, who passed away late last year, where in his book, Morality, he says this about the culture in which we live, a culture of violence and lex talionis, eye for eye and tooth for tooth. Jonathan Sachs says this, that it is not necessary to delegitimize, call out, or cancel your opponents. It is better simply to persuade them. <laughs> and Jesus in this section of the Sermon on the Mount is saying, don't use violence to get your way. Don't use violence to try and get even, but instead let's persuade through the power of love. Let's persuade through the power of nonviolence that there is in fact a better way forward. And friends, listen to me. This stuff, man, it is dynamite. He's talking to us as individuals. I don't think he's referencing nation states and how we are to deal with each other. That's a complicated matter, another sermon for another day. But he's talking to individuals and how we are called to deal in our relationships with each other. And this is revolutionary stuff because you know and I know that this is not how we have been taught to live. There's a saying that absolutely all of us have heard multiple times in our lives. Don't get mad. Get even. Don't get mad. Get even. I was talking to David Hughes about this a little bit earlier. And David and I were talking about a baseball game, for example, right? A baseball game where a pitcher might uh, hit someone with, with a pitch. And what is the impulse in a baseball game. The impulse in a baseball game is uh, when, when the inning is over and the next team gets out, you know what their pitcher is going to do? He's going to hit someone back. He's going to hit someone back because the idea is if you hit me, I will hit you. If you watch someone hit a home run and they're arrogant as they round the bases, you can be certain that the next time they get up to bat, what is going to happen? They're going to get hit because in our culture, the way that we were taught is that the myth of redemptive violence reigns supreme. Don't get mad, get even. <laughs> I can't help but remember that uh, baseball game back in 93, 94, where Nolan Ryan is pitching and he hits Robin Ventura. Do you guys remember this? And Robin Ventura drops his bat and he starts to walk towards first base and all of a sudden he turns and Robin Ventura, 26 years old, like fit in the prime of his career. And at this point, Nolan Ryan is an old man in baseball terms. He's 46. And Ventura storms the mound because he's not going to get mad. He's going to get even. And what happens in that moment? But Nolan Ryan wraps him in a headlock and just beats the snot out of Robin Ventura. And friends, that is a microcosm of the world in which we live. The myth of redemptive violence. Don't get mad, get even. And Jesus comes along in this section of the Sermon on the Mount and he says there is a better way forward. Don't misunderstand. It's not a list of things you have to do, but they're characteristics of a heart that has been transformed by the love and grace of Jesus Christ. And it is countercultural, and it is revolutionary, and it is life-changing. And we are not to forget that we are the salt of the earth, and we are the light of the world, and we live in an incredibly different way than a culture that is violent and angry and hateful. <laughs> Jesus goes on 
in the next section where he says, you've heard that it was said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. I want to pause for a moment because that passage is not actually in the Bible itself. But there was a popular understanding in the time of Jesus. Yes, through the Sakari, but also through the Essenes. We have some uh, writings of theirs from the Dead Sea Scrolls where they say that you should love your neighbor and hate your enemy with intensity in your heart. Would have been a popular understanding in the time of Jesus. And he says, you've heard that it was said from the Essenes and from others, love your neighbors and hate your enemies. But I say unto you, love your enemies and pray for those that persecute you. He goes on to say, That if you only love people that love you, what good is that? The Gentiles do that. The tax collectors do that. There's nothing special about it. What Jesus is saying is there's something like hardwired within the human condition to love those people that love you. Reciprocity is a cultural hardwired phenomenon. If you're nice to me, I will be nice to you. That's how things go. Jesus says to those Jews who were sitting there listening to the Sermon on the Mount, God has called you to be different. God has called you to be special. And he's talking not only to them, but he is talking to us. And he is saying in a culture where love for people that are like you is normative, we will actually be better. We will extend further. We will love those who hate us. And we will extend generosity and kindness and grace to those who wish we were dead. Pray for those. An ultimate expression of love to lift your heart to God on their behalf. Pray for those that persecute you. You are called to be different, Jesus says. And y'all listen to me. When you take this section combined with turning the other cheek and going the second mile and giving your cloak, friends, this stuff has the power to transform our lives. And we need to hear this message today. We need to wrestle with this in our own hearts because listen to me, friends. We are living in a day and age. I'm not saying anything that's going to surprise you. We are living in a day and an age that is more divided and polarized than we have ever been. And the hate between right and left politically is more intense than I have ever seen it. You're sitting there right now watching on television or watching online. If you're watching on Facebook, undoubtedly, as you were scrolling and landing on us, I guarantee you 100% you saw at least one angry political post. And if it wasn't about politics, it was about vaccination. (laughs) And we are living in a time where we are vilifying the other. And we have a choice, friends. Listen to me right now. Every single one of you has a choice. Which way are you going to choose to live in this world? Are you going to be people who only love those just like you? Or with a heart that has been transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ? 
Will you be someone who looks at another human being and sees the divine image? To love your enemy. To love the Republican. To love the Democrat. To love the African American. To love the rich white country club member. We have a choice. And in a culture of perpetuating division and anger, Jesus offers an alternative way forward. And so the question that I want to ask you this morning Pretty simple. Who do you hate? Seriously. Who do you hate? And on this day, you have an opportunity to respond to their anger and vitriol by turning the cheek, by walking the second mile, by engaging in patterns that blow their mind because they're expecting anger and you give generosity. But we have to begin with a question. Who do you hate? And I want you to sit with that. And I want you to wrestle with it. And I want you to follow the way of Jesus. Not because you have to, but because your heart can be transformed. Because you have the ability to be fully alive. Pray for those who persecute you and love your enemies. Some of you are watching right now and you're thinking like, Will, this is not possible. And what I want to say to you is that it is. We know that it is because we have seen it done. You see, at one level, this section of the Sermon on the Mount, it's about us. It's about the possibility inherent within a heart that has been transformed to live in an alternative framework. But at another level, it's a description of God. It is exhibiting for us the very characteristics of the divine nature. Because Jesus shows us what it looks like to turn the other cheek as they beat him on the way to the cross. And he says, for example, to Pilate, I could call down the angels of heaven and take care of this in a moment, but I refuse to respond in the way of the world. It's about the characteristics of God who walked the second mile, not carrying simply a Roman military bag, but carrying a Roman execution stake. Taking the cross, not only the second mile, but all the way to Golgotha where he died for my sin and for yours. Jesus is showing us what it looks like to live with this radical love to love your enemies, and to pray for those who persecute you as dying on the cross. He says, God, forgive them, for they don't know what they are doing. The very characteristic of God that models for us an alternative way to be human. And the good news of the gospel is that on the third day, he rose from the dead. And the power that raised Jesus from the dead, the very power of God, is working to transform our lives so that we might live and live well. And so today, my friends, I want to invite you 
to hear the words of Jesus, not to dismiss them as some pie-in-the-sky reality, but to embrace them as a novel idea on what it might look like for us to be the people of God in this world. So may we turn the other cheek. May we walk the second mile. May we, my brothers and sisters, be perfect as our heavenly Father is perfect. Let's take a few moments now and let's pray together. God, we are grateful for this day, for the opportunity to celebrate you and your goodness. And, O oh Lord, my prayer this morning for my brothers and sisters, for my friends who are watching online and on television, God, help us to answer that one simple question, who do we hate? <clears throat> God, who is it that we just can't wait to exact revenge on? Who is it, God, that burns our hearts with anger? <laughs> and on this day, O oh Lord, Help us to know that through the power of your spirit, we can respond not with anger, but with love, God, because we, through your power, can begin to transform the world, showing a better way. Lord, may we follow you, not only with our words, but God, on this day, may we follow you with our lives. God, continue to be with us as we worship you now. This is our prayer. And we ask it in Jesus' name, amen, amen.